So I hope you're all taller. Um, I hope you're all well. I hope you're all healthy. And uh, honestly, I'm looking forward to seeing you all in person, uh, maybe on a Sunday or Lord willing on a Friday when we're in a more normal youth group. Um, the last time I preached for high school, um, we actually were still in First Corinthians and it was 2019. We were in First Corinthians 8. So if you remember that, I talked about um, watching a movie when you're not supposed to watch it and uh, Veggie Tales. So remember that. Good for you. Uh, so that was a long time ago. Um, we'll be picking up in chapter 15 of First Corinthians. So if you have a Bible, please um, open up your Bible with me and I'll be reading in context um, our passage. Our passage for today is verse 35 through 49, but I'll be reading starting in verse three. Then I'll pray for us and then we can get into the preaching of God's word. So please, First Corinthians 15, verse three, follow along with me. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Jump down to verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now jump down to verse 35, our text for today. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a gift as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. 
The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Pray with me. Father, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard the wonderful things, Lord, that you have planned for us. Who could conceive, Lord, the great salvation that you have wrought for us in our Lord Jesus Christ? By his power, Lord, he raised himself from the dead. And Lord, by his power, he will conform us to his perfect body in our resurrection too. Lord, help us to believe not just that the resurrection is true, but to live as if the resurrection is true, Lord. Help us to know because Christ is raised, we too are raised in him. Thank you so much, Father, for every student here. I pray that you bless us, that you change us, Lord, more into the image of your son. It's in his, Christ, in his perfect name we pray. Amen. In verse 32 of our chapter, Paul wrote, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, if there's no resurrection, live it up. If this earthly life is all we've got, then eat, drink, binge, party, lust, indulge, sin. If this sinful world is all we've got, then carpe diem, seize the day and live for yourself. If this world is all we've got, then you better make sure this world this life is your best life, for tomorrow we die, and then it's all over. If this world is all we've got, then faith is stupid, the Bible's a lie, heaven's a farce, and God is not true. I mean, if this is all we've got, then why not be immoral? Why not sin? Why not be a scoundrel? Why not just be a rebel? Why not take what you want, give nothing back, and maximize your own pleasure? Why not define yourself by yourself for yourself? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It's the rallying cry of the hedonist, the reality of the materialist, the anthem of the atheist. Let's say I asked you, hey, you want to go on a road trip? The first question you'd probably have is, well, where to? A road trip to where? And then let's say, let's say I said, eh, I'm not sure. You want to go? I mean, if you're wise, you'd be immediately suspicious. You'd be like, oh, what? A road trip to nowhere? That's no timetable, no itinerary, no destination. Like, when are we going to get back? What kind of road trip is that? And yet, this is exactly how the unbelieving world lives. When they assume there's nothing beyond this life. Their life has no destination, no purpose, no direction. So all that's left is today. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Nothing after the grave means there's nothing worth living for. But Christians are different. For if the dead are raised by the power of the Almighty God, then everything changes. If you're a Christian, you necessarily believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. But if you believe in the resurrection, that means you will no longer live for yourself, but for him who loved you and gave himself up for you. He is Christ, your Lord. That means you will not live for your best life now, but you actually live for your best life to come. You will put to death the lusts of the flesh and the sins of your dying body, jealousy, bitterness, sexual immorality, laziness, selfish ambition, biting words, and present your body a living sacrifice to God. You will have a right balanced understanding of your current physical body, something to steward because it's a temporary temple of the living God, and yet not something to worship because when you die, your body will rot and return to the dust from whence it came. 
If you believe in the resurrection, you will long for your own resurrection when you will inherit a body free from sin, free from death, free in the power of Jesus Christ. You'll long for Christ in heaven, knowing that while you're here at home in the body, you're actually absent from the Lord. If you're a Christian, you must embrace the resurrection because without it, you have an ultimate hope. I mean, that's reason enough to care about the resurrection. But let me push to something even more basic. If you don't understand the resurrection, you cannot understand what it means to be human. You cannot understand what it means to be human. Genesis chapter two, verse seven says this. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath, the breath of life and man became a living being. Notice that God formed man from the dust, right? That means that man is therefore inherently material, like, you know, the flesh and bones of our physical bodies. Also notice that God himself breathed into man the breath of life and that the breath he breathed is not from the earth, but from God. Thus man is also inherently immaterial. That's like the spirit or the soul of our personhood. So by God's design in the very beginning, man is both body and soul. You could say it, we are embodied souls and ensouled bodies. To be truly human is, is actually be both. And you need to know that. You need to know that and hold both of those tightly because throughout history, the unbelieving world, even sometimes Christians, have usually focused on one of these to the detriment of the other. For example, uh, classic Platonism, which the first Corinthians were probably struggling with, teaches that the material is corrupt and evil, but that the spiritual is good and free. Therefore, what you do with your body doesn't really matter. Classic materialism, think like atheistic evolution today, ignores the spiritual completely and teaches that only the physical matters. What cannot be empirically shown actually doesn't exist. In today's world, we actually see both. We actually see overemphasizing the material and neglecting the spiritual and overemphasizing the spiritual and neglecting the material. So two examples, two examples. You might've heard people say, my body, my choice. My body, my choice. The pro-abortion argument presumes that we have absolute authority over our own physical bodies. And therefore that women have the right to kill the baby within their body without consequence. Someone of this persuasion might say that it's not about the fetus's life, it's about my body. This overemphasizes the material aspect of humanity to the detriment of the spiritual. Biblically, even if a person doesn't have a fully formed body or fully born body, he has a soul and is therefore truly alive and truly human. A person is a person, no matter how small. Another phrase you might've heard, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. This is something that um, the transgender movement might say, right? The argument is that one's authentic inner self, the spirit doesn't correspond to their physical body. So the world says that through behavior modification and hormonal treatment and gender reassignment surgery, we can reach peace with our true gender identity. But this exalts someone's perception of themselves, the spiritual, over the material reality of the body that God gave to them. It asserts that the physical reality must be changed to correspond with what the spirit wants. Biblically, God made us either male or female. Blessing comes from submitting and embracing his good design for us. Now, unfortunately, these issues are not the main point of our passage. Um, you, I hope that's pretty obvious to start reading the passage. And although I wish I could, I don't have time to actually dig into these questions. Um, if you want, you can call Eric tonight. Um, I'll give you his phone number. And uh, yeah, you can ask him. But I bring up these two unbiblical worldviews 
to demonstrate what happens when you fundamentally misunderstand what it means to be human. Right? We're both body and soul. You can't exalt one over the other. Christians, we need to understand what it means to be human. And therefore, that means we need to understand the human body biblically. We need, we need to understand the resurrection. And therefore, we need to understand the human body biblically. As I said a little bit earlier, life's kind of like a road trip. The scriptures on the map, resurrection is the destination. In order to live rightly, to drive in you know, the right direction and on the right path, you need to know where you're going. No one kind of meanders into heaven. No, no one trips and falls to the gates of glory. I mean, what is your life's destination? What's your ambition, your end goal, your greatest hope? If it's not the resurrection that you have in Jesus Christ, in a glorious, new, heavenly, real, physical, spiritual body, you're actually living like less than a Christian. But let me push it further. If you're not living in light of resurrection, you're living like less than a human. So let's look at our text together. The key idea for this sermon is pretty simple. A life set in on Messiah hopes in the resurrection. A life set in on Messiah hopes in the resurrection. First, mocking the resurrection. Verse 35 says this. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, Paul presents this hypothetical question as a continuation of his argument throughout the whole chapter of, verse, of chapter 15. Now, make no mistake, this person is mocking the resurrection by absurdity. He would say something like, resurrection of the dead? What, will we come out of the tombs like zombies? Like after dying at age 70, will I be resurrected and then just be old and decrepit with a cane and you know, all ugly and stuff to eternity? No, 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 right? Or they might say, will dead bodies be resurrected and forever need to be nursed? That's ridiculous. Resurrection is nonsense. But then Paul uses kindergarten logic, that's point two, kindergarten logic to give his answer. Verse 36, he says, you foolish person, right? Now it's kind of harsh. But biblically, fool means someone who lives as an atheist, someone who operates as if there's no God. Paul is not insulting this person's intelligence. He's insulting the fact that they live in an alternate reality as if God were not true. Then Paul appeals to what everyone already knows. Right? Look at the next part of the, uh, verse 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. When you plant a tree seed, you don't plant a really tiny version of that tree, you know, with like little branches and like roots and all that. You plant a seed, right? And the seed has an entirely different form than the plant that the seed will become. And this is obvious. In Curtain Garden, I had this craft where, you know, you take a bag, you put cotton in it, you put water on the cotton and you put seeds on top of the, on top of the cotton. And lo and behold, you know, the seeds germinate and they sprout and they become this, this plant thing, right? It's cool. When a plant is grown, the seed is nowhere to be found. You cannot look under a, root, a redwood tree and find the seed that it came from. The seed was grown and then died and give, gave life to phase two of the plant, AKA not the seed form, but the plant form. This is all from God. Look at verse 38. God has designed this. 38 says, but God gives a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed, its own body. God is the one who chose the kind of body each seed will have. An ord seed is not a walnut seed by God's design. Paul then brings that argument from seeds to creatures. Look at verse 39 with me. 39 says this, for not all flesh is the same. 
but there's one kind of humans, one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Right? Here, by flesh, got, uh, Paul means physical bodies of creatures, right? Now, obviously, humans, animals, birds, fish are different by God's design. But it's actually not the physical characteristics of those bodies that Paul is talking about. He's not talking about hair and fur and wings and fins and feet. He's saying the whole creature is different, meaning humans are not cows. Sheep are not pigeons. Ravens are not salmon. Again, obvious. We're in kindergarten. Now, one time in NorCal, um, I was driving on the freeway. And on the side of the freeway, I saw this billboard. All right. And the billboard was for the SPCA. Um, SPCA stands for the Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Um, basically, it's like a pet adoption agency, if you've ever heard of them before. And they're on the, on the billboard was this beautiful picture of a golden retriever and I think like a family behind it. And giant text on the side that said, pets are people too. Pets are not people. I was like, I was like so incredulous when driving. Pets are not people. It's so absurd. You don't take a child, put a leash on him and walk him around your, you know, your block. You don't put him in the kennel each night. I mean, imagine if your mom came up to you and said, oh, who's a good boy? Oh, good boy. Come on, little boy. Let's play fetch. Here's your food. It's ridiculous, right? Pets are not people. So don't, don't, don't say that. We like pets, I'm not against pets, but they're not people. <laughs> God made animals fundamentally different than humans. Right, we have different bodies. So now Paul goes from earthly creatures to heavenly creatures in verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earth is of, or the earthy is another kind. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs from star in glory. Notice that Paul says glory over and over again in his verses, right? When you, when you read glory, think importance, weightiness, substance. Paul is saying the creatures of earth have different glory than the creatures in the heavens, namely like the celestial bodies, like the planets and the stars. Again, we're in kindergarten here because obviously the sun, the moon, etc., they're different from one another and they're different from the things on the earth. The primary point of this past, of this, these couple of verses is this. Heavenly bodies have more glory than the things of earth. In other words, the sun outshines a firefly. Throughout his creation, God has revealed his eternal power and divine nature. He's made everything orderly and good. And by his design, his creatures are different from one another. And now Paul takes this kindergarten logic and applies it to the resurrection of the dead. Third point. Resurrection logic. Verse 42 says this. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Let's stop there. All the talk about seeds becoming plants or earthy bodies and heavenly bodies of fleshly bodies and glorious bodies is pointing to this one thing, the resurrection of the dead. Now, when I say resurrection, hear me clearly. The resurrection of the dead is not the mere resuscitation or mere revival of the dead. What I mean by that is that in order to be resurrected, you gotta be really dead. The earthly body must die just as Christ truly died. The resurrection is new physical life after death, not just being like, you know, brought back from near death or almost dead, but truly dead. And that resurrection life is a fundamentally different, better life than the previous life. One of the implications of that is that resurrection is not merely our souls returning to our old bodies. 
my 90 year old grandmother who died from really a car accident will not be resurrected back to her brain, back to a body with a brain hemorrhage. My 70-ish year old grandpa who died in Christ will not be resurrected back to his body that was ravaged by cancer. They will receive new resurrected bodies of an entirely different quality. And we can see that starting in verse, starting with the rest of verse 42. Paul says, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. The contrast could not be more stark. Phase one of the human body is perishable, dishonorable, weak. It's what Paul will later call natural or earthly, fleshly, corrupted, old, dying. Phase two of the human body is the imperishable, the glorious, the powerful, the spiritual, the heavenly, the incorruptible, the new, the everlasting. Phase one, the seed, the earthly body, has a different nature than the body of phase two, the plant, the resurrection body. Once we obtain our resurrection bodies, our earthly bodies will be gone, never to be found, never again to be needed. Late and I were texting about this this week, um, trying to figure out you know, some of the practical considerations of what does it mean to have a new resurrection body, right? So yeah, yeah, resurrection body's better, but how, how exactly, right? Like there's, what's the continuity between our old bodies and, and our new bodies. I mean, what does it even feel like to have an undying, gloriously strong body that can never die? I mean, we will eat, right? But will we go to the bathroom? Will, will we sleep? Will we still have the same hair color and be the same height and be the same age? Like, I don't know, like, how does that work? I don't know. The Bible doesn't really say actually, but I do know this, that Jesus, the preeminent one, the resurrected one from the dead, he gives us somewhat of a preview into what the glorious body looks like. For example, the disciples recognized the resurrected Christ by sight when he appeared when they were all gathered together in John 20. Yet others like Mary Magdalene and the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they didn't recognize him by sight until he revealed himself to them. Jesus also ate broiled fish before the disciples to prove he was truly human, not just a ghost. So you know, there's something natural about his body. And yet he also just like randomly appeared in the room, although the door was locked without needing to go into like a real entrance. So I don't know, will we be able to do that? After Christ's resurrection, he was obviously alive. He was perfect in a new body. And yet he was also able to show the scars in his hands and his side to the the doubting Thomas, the doubting disciple Thomas. So Jesus's body was the same, recognizable, truly human, and yet not the same unrecognizable and truly other. So I, I don't have all the answers. I don't know exactly what it would feel like to be in a true resurrected body. But the scriptures do teach this. The resurrected body will be better in every way. Perfect. There'll be no more suffering, no more sin, no more death because the old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. We will not grow weary, get sick or injured. We will not sin or even be tempted to sin because we have no desire to sin, period. We'll be perfect, finally able to see our God face to face because we will know him fully, even as we are fully known. The everlasting, unending, immeasurable, inexhaustible, unfathomable love of our Savior will be our constant delight because in resurrection bodies, we'll actually have for the first time, as much as possible for finite creatures, the capacity to understand his love. In our resurrection bodies, 
we will finally be as God intended, able to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Leighton concluded our text conversation like this, and he didn't know how to quote him at the time, but now I'm going to quote him. There are so many exciting things to discover in eternity. How wondrous it is that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. I can't even fathom an ounce of his wisdom and creative thought. And so that I say, amen. The scriptures answer a lot of questions about the resurrection life, but there are lots of mysteries too. If you want, go look up the chapter on resurrection, your favorite uh, systematic theology and, and have your mind blown. But for now, listen to what 1 John 3 says. It says this, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he, when Christ appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Look at that promise. We will be like Jesus, the perfect man in the archetypal resurrection body. Isn't that enough? Philippians 3 says this, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Whatever the resurrection body is, I'm in. I want to be like Christ. I want to share his glory. I want to be with him in a resurrection body forever. And dear Christian, that's your destiny. That's your life's destination. Now Paul moves from describing the resurrection body to arguing, arguing why it's absolutely guaranteed. Here's the promise. Look at verse 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. The imperishable spiritual body is a necessity of salvation because of Jesus. In order to see that, we have to dig into some Greek words. So I'm going to put on my nerd hat and uh, we're going to go into Greek, okay? So the word translated natural is sukikon, okay? Sukikon. Think psychology, the study of the soul. Don't think like natural, like organic food. That's, that's not what it's saying here. But think of, of this earth, worldly, unspiritual, fleshly, perishable, dishonorable, weak. Sukikon is the earthly human body, phase one of our existence. If you're taking a screenshot, I don't know. <laughs> okay. The word spiritual, like we're comparing natural and spiritual. The word spiritual is, well, related to the spirit, right? It's the opposite of natural. And it is in the same realm as imperishable, glorious, powerful, heavenly new. It's phase two of the resurrection body. Follow me? Okay. Natural is first, spiritual is second. Natural first, spiritual second. Now, the word spiritual, I must emphasize, is not the opposite of physical. Okay. Spiritual is not the opposite of physical. That's how we use it in our culture, and that's fine. But that's not what Paul is saying. The natural body is a physical body. The spiritual body is also a physical body. That means the earthly body is a natural physical body, obviously, right? We have them. The resurrection body is therefore a spiritual and physical body. This is so important. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you say it with me. Say this with me. The spiritual body is a physical, real, resurrected body. Okay, the spiritual body is a physical, real, resurrected body. Thank you. I can't hear you, but maybe I'm assuming you're saying it. Okay. We're resurrected in real bodies, not as like some ethereal ghost things, right? Have you seen the movie Soul? It's not how it is. It's wrong. Not biblical. Remember, we hope in a physical 
resurrection reality. Now, knowing that, look at verse 45 with me. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, this verse has four play on words, okay? Now, play on words are similar to puns. Uh, we all know what puns are. They're basically bad dad jokes. Like, oh, I got a haircut. Oh, only one? Or why couldn't the pony talk? Ah, because he was a little horse. Uh, thank you, Kenneth Rita. Uh, those are all his. Now, Paul isn't making these puns in order to be funny, okay? But instead to teach some theology. <clears throat> in the first half of verse 45, Paul quotes Genesis 2-7. I read it earlier, but let me read it again. Then the Lord God formed man from the ground, man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, the first word play is the word Adam. The first Adam is, well, pretty easy. He's the first man. He leaves husband, right? The last Adam is Jesus Christ. Now, I don't have time to go into like why that's true or what that even means, but if you're curious, go read Romans 5, 12 to 17. Okay. For now, take, take it from, uh, take it from me. The last Adam is Jesus Christ. The second word play is the word being, right? Now, this is why I belabored the Greek word sukikon so much earlier. ESV doesn't show you. I think maybe some of you have like a superscript that says, uh, on being, it means a living soul, right? That's good because the word translated being in verse 45 is sukein. It's very similar to the word translated natural, sukekon. Do you hear it? Paul is making connection. The first man, Adam, has a natural body as a man of earth, a man of dust. His body is perishable, dishonorable, earthy, fleshly, dying. Adam is phase one the earth that you've body. In the second half of the verse, Paul says that Christ became a life-giving spirit, a life-giving spirit. Now, contrary to the heretics, this does not mean that Jesus became the Holy Spirit, okay? I mean, look at the context of 1 Kings 15. We're not talking about Christology. We're not talking about who is Jesus. We're talking about the resurrection body. Because Christ is the firstborn from the dead, he provides the archetype of the resurrection body. And we can see this clearly in the third wordplay. The third wordplay is the word spirit, right? Christ became spiritual. Now remember, this does not mean that Christ became some non-physical, ethereal, floating ghost thing. Why? Now, what, do we, what was the phrase earlier? Because the spiritual body is a physical, real, resurrected body. In this verse, Paul means that Christ has a spiritual body, an imperishable, glorious, heavenly, resurrected body. Christ is phase two. The fourth word play is the word living. Whereas Christ, excuse me, whereas Adam lived in his natural body because God gave him life and breathed into him, Christ lives and gives life because he is the fount of life. The words translated life-giving is actually the same word used in verse 36. That which you yourself sow is not made alive unless it dies. So Paul connects the seed analogy with the human body. You cannot inherit the spiritual body until after the natural body dies. In other words, the resurrection body comes after the earthly body, just as all that is in Christ Jesus comes after Adam. First Corinthians 15 says this, or verse 21 says this, for as by a man came death, okay, Adam, by a man, that is Christ, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay, their hat off, no more Greek for today, so you can relax. Um, 
Okay. But let's back up. What's, what's the point? Why, why do we go all the way into the Greek? Why do we go on these four word plays? Like, what, what's the point? The point's this. Because Jesus resurrected from the dead in a spiritual resurrection body, so will we. That's it. We were born in Adam with perishable natural bodies. But in Christ, because of his resurrection, we will be resurrected to imperishable, spiritual, glorious bodies. Don't be a fool and mock the resurrection as if God was not real. If you do, you mock Christ. Now in college, I had a friend who was very much looking forward to his resurrection body. And he'd say things like, ooh, I'm gonna be hecka handsome. And he's like, kind of missing the point. Um, I mean, maybe sure. <laughs> Okay, Christians should look forward to the resurrection bodies. They should. Because there's no sin, we'll probably better be better looking, probably. We also probably won't care like the way people do today because there's no marriage and because God is the fount of beauty and he is there. So not the point, right? Not the point of the resurrection. As Paul says, we're only resurrected because we're actually bound up in Jesus. We leave phase one, our earthly bodies, and enter phase two, our resurrection bodies, because we're in Christ. Jesus himself said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. We are resurrected only in Jesus Christ. Just as we have died in him, we will also live in him. And look at how Paul describes this unity in Romans chapter six. So take your Bible, go back one book to Romans chapter six and read it with me. Romans chapter six, verse three. Romans 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. If we've been united with Christ in his death, we will certainly be, be united with him in his resurrection. Our old self was crucified with him so that when we physically died, we'll be free from this earthly body and brought into the freedom of our resurrection body. Why? Because we're one with Jesus, because we're united with Jesus, because we're in Jesus. Now, when I say those three phrases, in or united or, or one with him, I want you to imagine Christ as if he's folding you into his loving arms. Right? We're, we're wrapped up in him. We're caught up in him. We're bound to him as a, as a lover to her beloved, as a wife to her husband. This is how much Christ has loved us, that every spiritual blessing that he possesses, he shares with us. And that includes the resurrection. Don't make the resurrection body a gift divorced from the giver of all. Look forward to the resurrection. You should. I'll talk about that later. But never ever forget our eternity, our resurrection eternity was purchased by the death of one God-man, of one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of our salvation, this good news that Jesus Christ took on human flesh to come into our world, to live a blameless life, to die for our sins and resurrect for our salvation is the anthem of this earthly life and the anthem of our resurrection life. I want a new resurrection body. 
because I want to experience everything in Christ. This hope, this promise of eternity really ought to move us to thankfulness. Thankfulness that finally in Christ, there will no longer be death or mourning or crying or pain. That finally in Christ, in the resurrection, we will no longer have to watch our loved ones suffer from cancer or COVID or dementia or death. We should be thankful that in Christ, in this resurrection life, joy and blessing endure forever and never decrease. Again, life is like a road trip. Do you know where you're going? If you're confused or apathetic or distressed or discouraged, maybe you need to take a look at the map of God's word and fix your eyes on the destination, the resurrection we have in Jesus. It's something worth putting your hope in because it's guaranteed. And to see that, let's look, look at verse 46. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15, <clears throat> verse 46. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from heaven, a man of dust. Excuse me, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Basically, earthy body first, resurrection body next. Adam comes first, Christ comes next. And from these verses, I have three exhortations for you. The first is this, meditate on death. Meditate on death. Now, I don't know everything about you, um, but I know this, you didn't come from heaven. Right? You came from your mom or your dad. And therefore, you came from Adam and Eve, and you're dust. I mean, think about that. We're dust destined to die. As Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, for the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust, and all return to the dust. I mean, we're of Adam. We're of, of dust. We're earthy. It doesn't matter how young or strong you are. Children die in infancy all the time. Students die tragically all the time. Young adults die in their prime all the time. Tomorrow morning, when you wake up, if the Lord wills it, know this. You're one day closer to your death. Our bodies are like ticking time bombs, like spinning tops winding down, like batteries that eventually can never be recharged. Our bodies get tired. I mean, we simply sit all day doing Zoom school, and we're exhausted. Our bodies every single day need to do literally nothing in sleep for hours at a time. Our bodies need to be cleansed both inside and out multiple times a day. Our bodies get sick, our bodies break, our bodies ache, and finally, after however many years the word gives us, we die. That's the human life. Meditate on your mortality, truly. I came from a church and a family that has a lot of elderly people. And I've been to a lot of funerals. Every single time, death is still a horrific thing to behold. You must deal with death. Ecclesiastes 7 says, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man. And the living take it to heart. Why? The living take the heart because death is our end too. Take the heart. You're dust. God cursed the ground and sentenced Adam to death because of his sin. Chapter three, or Genesis chapter three. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you eat of it all the days of your life till you return to the ground. 
because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is our plight as children of Adam. We're cursed to labor, to toil, and then die. Every heartbeat, every breath, every day is a countdown to the end. What is your hope in life and death? That you're smarter dust or prettier dust or stronger dust? That's ridiculous. We're like the grass that withers and our earthly glory is like the flowers that fade. One practical implication of this is not only to meditate on your death, but also to admit that you're finite, that you're not immortal or that you're not divine. If you go on for days with little sleep, your body will revolt. It will break down and you'll be full of anxiety and sickness and anger and impatience. If you neglect the principle of the Sabbath, and by Sabbath, I simply mean taking an extended time not to work and instead resting in the Lord, reading his word, praying, fellowshipping with his people. If you don't Sabbath, you will suffer the consequences. I mean, think about it. God literally wove the Sabbath into the fabric of creation from the very first week. Don't neglect it. If you're busy saying yes to everything and always working, 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 you live ignoring the thing most guaranteed in this world, that you will die. So meditate on death, but don't lose hope. We don't lose hope in Christ because we don't hope in Christ for this life only, but also for our eternity. My second orientation is this, hope in the resurrection, hope in the resurrection. If you could turn back with me to book of Romans chapter eight, we're gonna Romans chapter eight, verse 18. Paul says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared, not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits for eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly, inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. What does that mean? The redemption of our bodies. If you want to endure and to persevere through any trial, you must hope in the resurrection. If you want to grow in eagerness for heaven, for dwelling in the presence of God, you must hope in the resurrection. If you want to know how to respond in a uniquely Christian way to the global effects of sin, like aka creation groaning, like environmental destruction, social injustice, racial enmity, political turmoil, you must hope in the resurrection. If you want to live a life glorifying to our Lord Jesus Christ, you must hope in the resurrection. If you don't, you're in a car, driving nowhere, probably about to careen off a cliff, trying to live the Christian life with your head stuck in the sand. If that's you, it's no wonder you're depressed. It's no wonder you're apathetic. It's no wonder your sin doesn't bother you. It's no wonder you love the world and the things in the world. It's no wonder you're afraid of tomorrow and the things you might lose. It's no wonder you're afraid of death. If you live without hope in the resurrection that we have in Jesus Christ, you're living like an atheistic materialist. Hope in the, hope in the resurrection we have in Christ. It's guaranteed. 49, verse 49 says this, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's a promise, isn't it? 
If you have a steadfast hope in the resurrection of Jesus, I mean, think with me. The worst thing the world can do is kill you. The worst thing the world can do is kill you. That's why Paul can say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Reflecting on the resurrection, Paul also wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. The outer man, that's our, our, our bodies, they're decaying. We're dying. Yet the inner man, the new heart, the new spirit is being renewed. And when Paul considered all his sufferings, you know, with his murders after him and beatings too numerous to count and all these persecutors chasing around the Roman Empire, he called it what momentary light affliction. How? Because he looked forward to the eternal weight, the eternal glory, the eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, achieved in the resurrection. Therefore, he does not grow discouraged. He does not lose heart. He's not become downcast. His hope in the resurrection is sure. What's your hope? What's your destination? Make it the resurrection. Thirdly, third exhortation is war against the flesh. War against the flesh. And by that, I mean put your sin to death. The logic is pretty simple. God has promised us a resurrection body, our true selves, if you will. So don't live for the lusts of the earthy body. In other words, be who you really are. You're a Christian. You've been claimed by Jesus Christ, purchased for God, declared a justified, holy people for his glory. We're cleansed to be his. We're destined for purity. So be what you are in Christ. Because we've been guaranteed to inherit resurrection bodies, we can hope in the resurrection and put our sin to death. There is a sense in which our earthly bodies actually tempt us to sin. If you're curious about that, you can go read Romans chapter 7, verse 14 to 25. It's not that we can like blame our bodies as if it's not part of us, right? I mean, again, we're both soul and body. But I think Romans 6 says it well. Romans 6 says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Don't let that happen. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Do this instead. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. In other words, live up to the reality that you, we are together, God's people. We are those with new hearts and new minds alive from the dead. Don't obey the lust of, our, of your earthly body. Live to God. Or as Romans 12 says, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. This is full dedication. There's no holding back. It's not like I'll give you know Jesus a little bit over here and keep the rest for me. All of it is his. You define yourself by Christ and all that he is and all that he says. You are a living sacrifice, a subject of the king, an adopted child of God. Live for him. To get really practical on the everyday, it means you flee sexual immorality. It means you flee pornography, self-gratification, fooling around. It means you flee sensuality, drunkenness, illicit pleasure. Do not sin against your body, for your body is no longer your own. You've been purchased the price, the death of our Lord Jesus. Therefore glorify God in your body, for in resurrection, our God will soon make all things new. The high schoolers and staff, brothers and sisters, God has called us to this great calling, to live a life centered on Messiah, 
We live in him and by him and through him and for him because of who he is and what he's done for us. Don't neglect the resurrection. Don't just slap it on the end of a gospel message. The resurrection is the culmination of all of the hope we have in Christ. The destination, the terminus of our life forever. Let us then, with body and soul, in life and in death, in earthly bodies now and soon to be in resurrection bodies, be entirely for our Lord Jesus. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this promise, Lord, this promise that we could never have come up on our, on our own. Lord. This promise that exceeds our imagination, that we will dwell with you. We will see you face to face. We will know you fully, just as you have fully known us, Lord. We will not have to hide or cower in shame or fear because you have cleansed us. And you have made us your own. And you have given us, Lord, bodies that actually can comprehend and live in your blazing glory, Lord. Help us to hope for that day. And Lord, to live today and tomorrow in light of that day, our eternal Lord rests with you. I thank you, Father, of every person here. Would you catch us up, Lord, in zeal and excitement and in joy of our resurrected Savior. It's in his perfect name we pray. Amen.